Election day came and went, and it was, well, quiet. So what does that mean moving forward? We'll break it all down. Facebook had a big cache of data floating around the internet. We talked to the CEO of the company that did the exclusive research. Whether it's government agencies or banks, we have the full breakdown of breaches on this week's Securiosity. Let's go. Welcome to Securiosity for Friday, November 9th, where we are coming off a quiet election day, at least from a cybersecurity perspective. Good. Maybe we won't talk about election security going forward. Yeah, I mean, I'm surprised that it was kind of quiet, but hey, it's 100% (laughs) a good thing that it was uh, quiet. Uh, No sort of DDoS attacks, no sort of manipulation. Um, Happy that everything went smoothly. We have plenty of news to get to you, but we're excited for our interview with Alistair Patterson, the CEO and founder of Digital Shadows. Digital Shadows is a company that did some research into some Facebook data that was found on the internet. We talked to him about that and how digital risk is becoming more and more of a conversation that fits in with how companies are dealing with cybersecurity. It really is a great interview, but there is a bunch to get to that happened during the week, so let's hit the news. Election day went off without a hitch. DHS said Tuesday no reported cybersecurity events occurred that would alter the ability to cast and count votes. Officials gave broad briefings of what was gleaning from the information sharing among state and local officials, election tech vendors, and other election stakeholders. While some low-level online scanning of state systems are observed throughout the day, officials said it did not go beyond what it was anticipated and was not attributed to malicious actors. They said that it was the culmination of two years of preparation in light of the foreign cyber operations and propaganda campaigns targeting the 2016 election. What do you think of these efforts? So uh, everything went off smoothly, and it seems like there wasn't really a lot to defend against. So... um, to say that it's a culmination of two years of preparation, that that's great. They did all the prep that they needed to do. But then again, there wasn't really anything that needed to be defended against. I mean, we've heard over the past few months of DDoS attacks hitting uh, election results, websites, and just the whole mess around election security when it comes to the vendors. So none of that happened at all. None, none of it was ever affected. So... It's nice that there was not an incident, but there wasn't really a lot to defend against. So I guess it was a good prep run because I would imagine that 2020 were things are going to happen, whether it happens months beforehand. But I mean, we've seen over the past couple months that these campaigns of propaganda and influence operations aren't necessarily going to stop. It's funny because the day before the election and election day, all over my Twitter and, and Facebook feeds were people making comments that DHS was doing nothing to protect us um, and election security. So I just thought that was really interesting because we didn't have any attacks. Right. And look, we can talk about benchmarking where they are as far as what they need to do to secure elections moving forward. And sure, there's tons that needs to be done. Obviously, if you've been listening to this podcast, we pretty much hit on all of them. (laughs) Um, But... The efforts that were shown, again, I I go back to this was a good test run. It was almost like the preseason for what is going to be the 2020, like, mid-season cyber, you know, extravaganza that we're going to see. I mean, there are going to be events because it's a presidential election, and we saw what happened in 2016. There are going to be nation states to try again. Like, that's just what's going to happen. So at least we have a foundation for looking for it 
and realizing what to do when we do see that in 2020. But as far as Tuesday, hey, all, all quiet, all good. Sadly, I think we're going to be talking about election security even more. So including this next story. <laughs> uh, so there is an update on the way that that blockchain voting app worked over the week. Uh, nearly 150 West Virginians living outside the United States cast ballots in Tuesday's election using a blockchain-backed mobile app that West Virginia officials have touted as an ideal way to boost participation. The office of the Secretary of State, Mac Warner, said that 144 voters, many of whom are active duty military members deployed overseas, used the Votes app to make their choices for races in the U.S. Senate, the House of Representatives, and state and local offices. The state had been criticized by election security experts for entrusting the democratic process to a relatively new and trendy form of technology, but Warner's office has stood by the decision to use the distributed ledger platform as a way to help the state's furthest flung voters participate in its elections. Jen, like you said, we've talked about this before. Does this change your opinion at all on mobile voting? So I think that if we can audit that 144 votes um, and make sure that the proper votes were cast and it all was did what it said it was going to do, I think it's a great idea. Um, I think it is important that we allow our deployed um, military to vote. So I think this could be really interesting. I think that it all comes down to scalability. Right. for me in that, look, having 150 people do it overseas, that's fine. Uh, th there's not a scaling problem there. You could pretty much with today's technology, let 150 people do almost anything technologically on their phone. And you're from a security perspective, yeah. you're probably going to be good. Scaling that up to the population of West Virginia to have anybody that has a mobile phone start to vote, then you start to get into questions. And just outside of the, the security part of it, you start to get into uh, interoperability things. Like, right. okay, are, what level of Android are you going to have this on? What level of uh, iPhone are you going to have this on? And also, this is obviously not going to be something that we eventually see move to 100%. There's still a digital divide. Like, there are just some people that are not going to be connected to the Internet. Absolutely. And they need to be able to yeah. vote uh, however it is that they want to vote. So, but I think that the interoperability thing kind of goes part and parcel with the security thing where you're going to have, or are you going to make sure that this works on all of these different platforms? Like, how are you going to integrate that to make sure that everybody's able to cast their vote if they want to do that? I don't think it's feasible um, to happen in the United States for every voter at this point. Right. Um, especially, I mean, especially West Virginia, right? I mean, there's just not broadband as you go through the Blue Ridge. Yeah. Uh, so even just we could talk about the security part of it, and, and it's been talked about. I, I don't think that using the blockchain for this is necessarily uh, something that people are clamoring for. But in the event that they but are. Go West Virginia for making the news. Yeah. <laughs> hey, uh, good on them for even uh, taking a chance and, and doing that. Because I do think, obviously, we have talked about it ad nauseum. There's plenty of room for innovation in the election tech space. So at least they're trying something. So in other election news, over the past few months, a handful of tech companies have offered election offices and political campaigns free tools to help them secure their systems. There are obvious long-term PR benefits, but experts say the companies are filling real gaps where the election community doesn't have its bases covered. But some say the effort needs to be more coordinated for future events. One DHS official called it a free-for-all that has inundated offices with options without context. 
Executives said they're still learning how to meet elections offices and campaigns needs, which vary greatly. Greg, how do you see companies fitting into the system moving forward? So I think it's upon the companies to work a little better with DHS when it comes to aligning and letting people know what is out there. I mean, we have a resource on our website that sort of catalogs all of the free and close to free options for either uh, state and local officials or election vendors or anybody um, to figure out what they need and if they can do it for free. But uh, so the DHS official that called it a free-for-all was Chris Krebs. And I kind of believe that he's right in that regard, just saying, okay, well, here it is. Figure it out. Well, no. Like, if you're talking about going through official channels, then let's sort of use the bureaucracy to the best of its ability. Like, there are plenty of ways that there could be portals or lists or even through the federal contracting mechanisms where state and local election officials can figure this out a little more than just hearing about it through our websites. Like, there does need to be a little bit more organization when it comes to something like this. It seems like somebody should come up with, here's the standard, here's how they did it, and give a play-by-play book um, to everybody else. And there are plenty of groups, too, that I feel like could do this, whether it is the Center for Internet Security, the Cloud Security Alliance, the Global Cyber Alliance, uh, the uh, Cyber Threat Alliance, a lot of alliances there. I mean, yeah, but, right? but so that word, you know, sticks out because that's what this is. This is right. uh, a really a public sector or a private sector alliance coming together going, okay, here's what we can do for election security. Just get it organized so that when 2020 comes up, it is not this free-for-all where it's like, okay, well, well what can I do with Cloudflare and what can I do with Synac and what can I do with Silence? Like there just needs to be a little bit more structure. I don't think it's a huge hurdle to overcome. So USB drives continue to be the bane of industrial network defenders' existence. A survey by Honeywell of USB usage at 50 industrial sites found that multiple advanced threats from Stuxnet to Trisis were detected and blocked. It's not the presence of these threats that is concerning the research states, but rather that these threats were attempting to enter industrial control facilities via removable storage devices in a relatively high density. That is significant. Jen, if you were in charge of a plan or critical infrastructure at this point, wouldn't you just ban USBs? I would, in general, ban USBs from everywhere. (laughs) So just enterprises totally. Enterprises totally. We shouldn't be using them. I mean, I wouldn't even dream of sticking a USB into my computer and then into yours. Yeah. I mean, it just isn't something we should be doing. It's too easy um, to spread malware that way. Yeah, and that's what really sticks out to me here, especially when we're talking about industrial networks and ICS like we're we're not just finding worms or run of the mill ransomware or trying to co-opt enterprise computers into a botnet. We're talking about Stuxnet. We're talking about Trisis here. These are two of the most powerful pieces of malware that have been created over the past decade. Like they can destroy stuff and that destruction can lead to the loss of human life. Like this is stuff that does not need to be anywhere near exactly. uh, an industrial network. And it is very clear from the research that has been put out and the stories that have been written that this malware comes via USB. It hops air gaps because it's on USBs and the USBs get put into computers by humans. 
Stop doing that. <laughs> Stop doing it. Stop letting the USBs in. The cloud is there for a reason. The cloud right. is leveraged for a reason. Use your cloud, protect your cloud, and it'll probably work out a lot better than having USBs pass from computer to computer. They shouldn't make them anymore. So the Apache Foundation is urging developers to update a key component of the Apache Struts framework in order to address a vulnerability that could allow remote code execution attacks. A vulnerable component in some older versions of the framework needs to be replaced to prevent your publicly accessible websites from being exposed to possible remote code execution attacks, the Apache team said. Such an attack would allow hackers to potentially take over an unsuspecting developer's server and install malware. The flaw dates from 2016, according to the CVE number, so it's not clear why Apache is addressing it now. Greg, we've been here before, haven't we? Yeah, uh, Apache Stretch was... The, the vulnerability behind the attack on Equifax. So everybody should be paying attention to this. Like, th this is bad. Remote code execution attacks and Apache struts is bad. A lot of enterprises use this. So, um, yeah, I mean, if you've read what happened to Equifax and you don't want that to happen, I would imagine you wouldn't want that to happen. Um, patch your stuff. Like, it's just... It's as simple as that. Uh, if you have <laughs> Apache struts in your enterprise, patch this. Don't become Equifax. Problem solved. So HSBC disclosed a security incident earlier this week saying that a small number of U.S.-based bank accounts were breached. In a letter template sent to the California Attorney General's office, the bank said it became aware of online accounts being accessed by unauthorized users between October 4th and October 14th. The bank started notifying affected customers on Tuesday, and HSBC says only 1% of accounts were impacted, which... Okay, fine, but with a bank that holds over $200 billion in assets, we're sure that that true number reaches in the thousands, if not higher. And at least one major commercial bank in Pakistan experienced a recent cyber attack of some kind, but that's where the consensus ends. The country's central bank says the breach was contained to one institution, but a top law enforcement official told media organizations that many other banks were attacked by an international hacker. Meanwhile, Pakistan cybersecurity researchers reported that they found information from thousands of accounts for sale on the dark web. The banks and the governments are still sorting out what really happened. Uh, critical infrastructure, Jen, the financial institution, as much money as they pour into it, they're still still getting hit. And apparently they're trying to hide it? I, so, well, that... Pakistan, I will cop to this. I'm not familiar with the inner workings of the Pakistani government, so I really don't know how they handle uh, their reporting or transparency when it comes to cyber attacks on their private sector. Something happened in Pakistan, whether it was one bank, whether it was six banks, or whether it was all the banks in Pakistan. doesn't look to be very good. <laughs> I mean, when is a bank being hacked? Very good. But at the same time, um, yeah, there seems to be a lot of noise there regarding what exactly happened. The HSBC thing to me is really interesting because to the point that we talked about there, they said only 1% of accounts were hit. That's great. great. Only 1%. Well, what's the actual number on that? Like, are we talking 30,000 accounts? Or, like, they were not very forthcoming with the amount of accounts that they had to, to attach a number to that. And obviously, from a PR perspective, I get it, but at the same time, like, do better. <laughs> do better with what exactly it is I mean, it, it still bothers about. me that it takes a month to get notified that you've been hacked. Well, and I that's... Mean, I just don't understand that. That's something that GDPR and those laws are, are trying to overcome in that, you're right, it shouldn't take a month because you want to know instantly. Right. Or as instantly as possible. So 
is 72 hours a good window? I think that 72 hours is after you have discovered something instead of sitting on it for a month and having to go through a legal process. Like, get it out to your consumers as soon as possible. The stuff matters. It's people's money. I mean, look, American Express calls me if I do something weird and spend in a store that I don't typically go into. So you would think, you know, the banks would notify you too. Right. So Symantec on Thursday published new details on the malware used by North Korean hackers to steal tens of millions of dollars from ATMs over the last two years. The malicious code targets to switch application servers that underpin ATM transactions. Using executable to produce fraudulent messages that appear to adhere to an industry standard. The Lazarus group of North Korean hackers continue to pose a serious threat to the banking sector and organizations should take all necessary steps to ensure that their payment systems are fully secured, semantic researchers said. Greg, you warned us that North Korea wasn't going to go away. Yeah, and they clearly have not. You know, we go back to those bank stories that we just talked about in the last segment. Um, I would not be surprised if we find out in a week or two that it was North Korea behind both of these instances. This is what they do. And yeah, like the FBI said, they do not care that law enforcement and researchers are on to them. They're going to do what they have to do to get around sanctions. And in order to get around sanctions, they need money. So they're just going to go out and hack the international banking system and take the money that they want to have. Uh, I'm not surprised by this at all. And I would not be surprised if we're kind of rehashing this in six months. North Korea is out here very brazen in what they're trying to do. And they're just going to keep up with it. Now some Twitter news. So the hacker who launched distributed denial of service attacks on Sony Online Entertainment and other online gaming companies in 2013 and 2014 pleaded guilty in federal court Tuesday. Prosecutors said 23-year-old Utah resident Austin Thompson caused at least $95,000 in damage by flooding the company's servers with internet traffic in order to take them offline between December 2013 and January 2014. Thompson used his Twitter account, Derp Trolling, to announce that his DDoS attack what in advance. A right? Federal prosecutor said, and then post screenshots of the victim servers that had been taken down in the aftermath. Deep trolling indeed. Yeah, derp derp, oh, derp the derp, the derp is strong here because yeah. just don't don't DDoS um, Sony game servers on Christmas because you're gonna piss off a ton so of people. people. A ton of people. Um Look, in 2013 and 2014, this was a skiddy's way of being funny and trolling the world. Now I feel like you're just going to bring the wrath of the internet on you. God forbid gamers don't have their Twitch accounts or access to online gaming or anything like that. Like, this is just lame. And I, yeah, I'm not being pejorative there. I say this as somebody that plays video games too and gets annoyed when there is downtime. Like, DDoSing game networks to me just is is so lame like uh, you you plead guilty and you're going to serve some time in jail and you should because this is just a stupid crime stupid. and stupid crime and you're 23 you should know better right well i mean yeah so he's 23 now but even so he was 16 or 17 years old oh. and sitting at home and going okay i'm i'm going to i'm going to turn some bots against the playstation network that's you're lame dude so enjoy your time in jail <laughs> How do you really feel about that? So the attacker is responsible for a breach of an online portal run by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services last month, did so by taking advantage of lax privileges given to legitimate accounts. In October, CMS announced that hackers obtained data on 75,000 people from a portal used by health insurance agents and brokers. 
acting CIO Rajiv Apal said that the breach happened after 45 portal attacks conducted millions of searches in order to pull information from the database. From those searchers, which included names, birth dates, and social security numbers, attacks were able to get data on about 75,000 people. The actors didn't break into systems using some sort of obscure hack or something else. They used the front door, Paul said on the call. That seems uniquely bad. Yeah, um, this is uniquely bad in that they had access. Again, they walked through the front door. This wasn't a vulnerability in a service that the portal sat on. This wasn't somebody that was fished. This was somebody or, or group that created accounts just like you and I were if we were health insurance agents or brokers, went in there and did the searches and pulled all the information. The thing that is interesting here is that there were no checks on that type of behavior. There were 20 million searches done when these accounts access the portal. If you have anomalous behavior detection inside your enterprise, stuff like that would be flagged and you would figure it out ahead of time and not in the lead up to the open enrollment yeah. uh, for insurance. So it's uniquely bad in that they did come in the the front door. I mean, they they fixed that they fixed this, but also and I want to say one thing also is that social security numbers that was not released when uh, CMS initially put out a press release on this hack. That's uniquely bad. Uniquely bad that social security numbers are out there from this breach. Obviously, SSN's holy grail, not good. So to the business corner of the week, there wasn't a lot of venture capital funding, but there were two acquisitions that we want to talk about. Software-focused private equity firm Toma Bravo is purchasing security testing company Vericode for $950 million from Broadcom. Vericode has been around for about 10 years and was bought last year by CA Technologies for $614 million, but that was before Broadcom bought CA Technologies in July this year. Vericode runs a SaaS platform that helps software developers detect security issues in their applications at various points in the software development cycle. The companies said that Toma Bravo's other software partnerships will help Vericode's future operational and product development plans, and Vericode boasts that it has over 2,000 customers and serves the Fortune 100, blah, 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 all of that stuff that a lot of these companies have. Also, Forescout announced it has acquired Security Matters, which is a company that works with OT network protection for approximately $113 million in cash. The acquisition will bolster Forescout's global leadership position in agentless device visibility and control across extended enterprise with expanded capabilities and advanced features to secure OT in industrial environments. So, Jen, talk to me about these. I thought AppSec was supposed to be a good business to be in, and it seems that everybody is just passing around Verico like a hot potato. <laughs> so I, I sort of think this comes back to not really anything about the company per se, but you know, in the tech industry, we've got unicorns that we fund, but really in the cybersecurity industry, we've got cockroaches. Um, in that, Ouch. I mean, it's it's funny to say, right? But they tend to be around for a long time. They still need a lot of capital. Um, they grow, but they don't grow as big as like an Instagram's gonna grow. Right. Um, and, you know, they need all that capital so the valuations get bigger. And quite frankly, you know, there's a point to which it doesn't make sense to put more money into a company. It makes more sense for a private equity firm to come in and buy it. Um, 
you know, it's it's not big enough to IPO probably. Again, didn't dig into the details about this company. Um, you know, and as you look at sort of type securities in general, it, there's just not enough companies to acquire them. So valuations tend to stay low. Yeah, the price here for Veracode, even though it seems to be getting flipped, I mean, it's still going up. Broadcom made 300, over $300 million selling, uh, selling off Veracode. So it seems like there was... At yeah, least from a business it's perspective, it's, uh, uh, it looks like it's yeah. growing. Yeah, just such a weird way to grow. I feel like, but yeah. uh, on on the other hand, the security matters uh, for Scout acquisition thing. I mean, that just seems like more and more of a gobbling up of visibility. I mean, we just talked about the USB story. Yeah. I, I imagine that for Scout is probably going to leverage this company into helping. ICS companies figure out whether they have USB devices on their networks. I mean, the more visibility they have, the better. Yeah, why develop something when you can can buy it? It has customers already. Right. So, okay, now on to our interview with Alistair Patterson. Alistair gets into his work around Facebook, digital risk, and whether he sees a sea change coming for the way people think about their privacy online. Okay, joining us today is Alistair Patterson, the CEO and founder of Digital Shadows. Appreciate you coming aboard with us. Hey, good afternoon. Great to be here. So, for those that aren't aware of Digital Shadows, what is your concentration? Tell us a little bit more about your company. Yeah, sure. So, essentially, we protect companies from the digital risks outside their perimeter. So, where they're leaking data, where they're being impersonated online, or their brands damaged in some way, or where they're being threatened or, or exposing themselves to attack in some form. So that's, yeah, that's really the, um, I guess the, the turn point for, for setting up Digital Shadows was realizing that companies couldn't just think about the boundary and the perimeter anymore. We're in this world of digital transformation where those boundaries have disappeared and suddenly a lot of companies' assets are on the outside, right? Fundamentally, move to the cloud, the move to mobile, and the move to you know, social media and the internet of things. So it isn't enough to just sit on the perimeter and, and monitor traffic and block the bad guys, keep the ground tools in the middle. The data's on the outside now, so you need to have a perspective on your digital footprint and the risks associated. So that's what we do at Digital Shadows. So speaking of social media, you had some interesting research come out recently tied to Facebook. Can you tell us more about it? Yeah, so I, I guess it was a, a story that the BBC broke in the last week, which was uh, yeah, it, it, quite an interesting one, where they'd been uh, approached with some data from a uh, threat actor that was claiming to have stolen a lot of Facebook account data. So it was over 100 million accounts that they claimed to have in that possession. And they offered a sample of 16 gigabytes of the data and you know, provided that to the BBC for essentially verification that that was the case, having originally posted it on, online, the fact that they had the data. So the BBC approached us to analyse and verify whether this was an authentic dump of data or not. And so we, we spent quite a bit of time with our security engineering team going through it and, and assessing what was in that dump and the, the veracity of the data. And as we published online and, and the full you know, full information is on the blog on our website, but you know, it, it absolutely does appear to be legitimate. Uh, but it's quite, a, quite an interesting sort of selective sample of data, predominantly from uh, the Ukraine and Russia, uh, rather than elsewhere in the world. But within there, there's you know, full account details, there's private messages, there's personal information and everything associated with an account. So it does look like a you know, real sample of data. So the interesting thing is then, well, you know, how, how did they get hold of that then? And, you know, and is the, 
you know, is the more there? And from Facebook's initial response, it sounds like they, certainly as far as they're concerned, there's no direct breach of Facebook that, you know, that they're, they're reporting. So it, it appears, you know, the original suggestion for them was that it might have come through malicious browser plugins or some other form like that. But that hasn't been confirmed yet. So we don't know exactly how the data's got out, but it certainly looks real. And w- do you have any idea of where the data was sitting? Was it on the dark web? Was it on a pastebin scrape? somewhere like how did uh, the BBC or even Digital Shadows come across well, the BBC gave Digital Shadows the data yeah uh, where was this data found so I think it was originally placed on a, a black hat SEO site okay. so you know fairly malicious site not particularly sophisticated necessarily in terms of some of the, the sites we would see but yeah certainly the sort of place it, it was being offered for sale that you would see other things uh, you know dubious things offered for sale um, in terms of you know where did the data come from originally? I guess that's the question. that's quite hard to prove as to how they, you know, how did they obtain the data? Right. Okay. So with that, you know, we we've seen this breach, a uh, third party breach, and we've seen Facebook dealing with other issues, particularly the one around the thirty million accounts that were accessed through tokens that were leaked. Uh, we're talking about digital risk, is particularly you yeah. know that's the way you look at it through the company. So. How do you see Facebook changing and sort of evolving when it comes to these discoveries? Because, like you just said, it doesn't seem to be something that is internal, at least in case of, of the um, data that you looked at. But so how do you see Facebook? I think Facebook is a good example. How do you see companies maturing when it comes to understanding how they protect their data, even when the data isn't necessarily inside their own enterprise? Yeah, huge, huge variety in terms of the maturity and, and understanding of the response. I mean, the, the typical thing we see is just a lack of visibility of the risk that most companies have. So they, you know, they don't even know the issues that they've got that they need to solve because they're not looking outside in a great deal of detail. Now, I think Facebook is a bit of an outlier. It's extremely mature, you know, great security team and practices as, as you'd expect. And they're taking these threats incredibly seriously. You know, I've got a, a friend who's been working in the war room there, on uh, looking at the social media around the election, for example. You know that. In speaking to him, I know they're taking that aspect of their the the security of their platform incredibly seriously, for example. But I think it, it's just very, very difficult when you've got this much this much data, this many ways it can get out, and a lot of them are just not tied back to you. It could be the end user that's compromised in some way that's to a large extent out of your control. So very challenging environment to try to protect for them um, but everybody else has similar issues in, in one way or another and, and may just not know about them if they're not looking outside. So okay so let's get away from Facebook and talk about those others if I'm a critical infrastructure if I'm somebody that deals with critical infrastructure or even on the other side if I'm a small or medium business you know how am I dealing with this how can I sort of move forward to look at the digital risk that I have and sort of not only let my customers know, but let my internal employees know how to deal with this moving forward. Yeah, great great topic and very challenging environment. I mean, you, you've seen years of this where companies have been uh, and their employees have been using you know, cloud services, starting to put things online, having to move with the times. You know, the business tends to win, so business transformation comes in. 
and then no one's been been kind of sweeping up behind them and looking at what's getting out online. So it's uh, you know it's a challenge for big companies, but for smaller companies, it's incredibly difficult because they don't have specialist teams that are you know, perhaps thread intel specialists looking on the outside, or big SOC teams that are able to look at the data loss aspect of what's getting online. I think the you know it, it does start with visibility. So where where are your assets online, and and what are the threats to the business as a result of that? So if you're a critical infrastructure provider, you've probably already got some quite mature tools. Uh, you've probably already got some kind of a threat intelligence team, for example, but that might just be looking at the adversaries and, and the kind of strategic result, or it might just be looking at feeds of bad IPs and botnets and, and so on and trying to block those. What it's probably missing is saying, okay, you know, what are the crown jewels that we've got? Where are they popping up online? You know, where are they being sold or maliciously targeted? But at the same time, where, where are we leaking them? Uh, we put out a really interesting bit of research about accidental data leakage, where we were looking at Amazon S3 buckets, uh, SMB shares, FTP, R-Sync, and there's 1.5 billion files out in the open that companies have accidentally leaked. You know, and that included 700,000 payroll records, 12 million email inboxes that are out there affecting a lot of the largest companies uh, in, the, in the world, frankly. And so, you know, a lot of companies will be pushing ahead with the cloud programs, pushing data out there, uh, and the security being an afterthought, there's these, you know, chunks of data landing in S3 buckets and elsewhere that, uh, that can really critically undermine a company's security that they just wouldn't think about because they're busy focused on the network and the perimeter, and they're running as fast as they can with their, their transformation programs. So I think it's that visibility of not just threat intel, threat environment, but the broader digital risk uh, piece that's important. It goes beyond data loss as well. It's also the brand reputational risk. It's back to social media, but not just social media. You've got the domain squatting, typo squatting, and and you know fake mobile applications and all kinds of other things that can can really damage a brand, mislead their customers, and and affect a company in a, in a serious way. So I think that broader perspective on your you know your whole digital footprint and the risks inside is is really important these days. How do enterprises protect themselves from having those sort of documents leaked? Yeah, great question. So I think there's, you know, we've had DLP for years, right? It's expensive, hard to deploy, but still, you know, if you're a big org, you've probably done something with it and it's smart to do that. But there's a range of other risks because you've got, you know, you've got employees that are, you know, passing things out to third parties, you've got your trusted partners and, and a range of other ways that information is getting online that it doesn't necessarily pass through your DLP controls. So it's it's really important to have that outside-in perspective as well as the just looking at the perimeter. But I think it probably starts with stepping back and identifying the critical assets of the business. What really matters to the business? Where are the crown jewels and how are you protecting those? And we see companies you know, embedding metadata, putting better controls around those. Obviously, there's the insider threat and, and monitoring piece of, of that too. So making sure only the people that need to have access have got access. Where does the data go when it's left is, is the next question. And that's, again, we're having that monitoring the outside is as important as monitoring the inside these days. You mentioned um, you found, was it 700 documents or 700,000 documents? What do you do with those once you find it? Are you going back and contacting those companies? Yes, it's a difficult one. So it's actually 1.5 billion documents, oh. right? 700,000. <laughs> scale is extraordinary. Yeah. You know, this is, uh, you know, petabytes of data that's out there. And yeah, with, within that, there's, uh, yeah, 700,000 email Got it. archives, right? So 
that's a lot. Um, you know, a ton of data out there. But I think the um, yeah, the, back to your your question was was about what to you know what can they do about that or what or do we do when we find it? Yeah, so we've got a we've got a takedown service that we supply. So when there's something out there that can be removed from the internet, we we can get involved on our clients' behalf and help them by by removing the data from the internet where it's appropriate. Um, where we find data, you know, we come across things that are not. Um, not for our clients that's a slightly more difficult scenario because the last thing you want to be doing is is be seen as ambulance chasing so we mm-hmm. do have a responsible disclosure process and from time to time we do notify companies when we come across something very serious on their behalf uh, but we're, we're sort of very careful at how we do that and that's done through our security team uh, not by anyone else in the business but yeah there's a lot out there <laughs> it would take a long time to sift through it all so what more can vendors do to help enterprises keep their data protected? Because look, we've been talking about digital transformation, I feel like, since the beginning of the decade. I mean, it's still right. happening because it's a big process, yeah. the bigger the company that you have. However, the, the vendors are the one that kind of bear some of the brunt of this because you're talking about S3 buckets and you're talking about you know Azure Cloud and all the other companies that are trying to get their cloud instances inside enterprise IT. So I'm wondering how much do they contribute to the conversation on, hey, everybody needs to be aware of their digital risk? I really think it's critical that, that that's thought about up front. You know, it's often, as always, security is an afterthought. And I think from, a, you know, from the security provider's perspective, it's about being a partner rather than just a software vendor that's throwing something over the fence and then expecting companies to deploy it and use it and deal with it. I think you've got to get involved and get alongside uh, the clients and make sure that they understand the risks and they're prepared for them. So it's it's I, I think the vendor relationships need to be more than just a you know a sales relationship. It, it extends beyond that. You've got to understand the business drivers too, because I think it's easy for us to sit in in our kind of security world and you know be very religious about the security. But the reality is the business has still got to operate too, and we have to understand they're not always going to make the most secure calls, uh, but they should they should take on. The, you know, make those decisions with an awareness of the risk. I think we probably haven't done a good enough job of communicating the risks high enough in the client, uh, the clients either. So, I think we've we've got to be communicating better with the C-suite so they understand when they're pushing forward with business change that there's strong security component to that. So, we it's something we've been spending a lot of time on recently is going back and forth and running workshops with CIOs, CISOs, and others in the business to try to understand. You know, how do you think about your risk, and how can we help you understand how you know where that's coming from, and, and how to interpret it? And the sort of things we hear are the, the you know, peer comparison is critical. They all want to know how are they doing versus their peers. Right. They want to know about trending. You know, am I getting better or worse? Um, and then they want to know a bit about the general environment they're in. So you know, the industry, the sector, because they're all distinct. You know, the, the risk that an investment bank faces are very different from a retail bank, from an insurer. But they all tend to get blocked into financial services a lot of the time and things like that. So it's um, those are the areas that I think the vendors can focus on to help their, you know, help the clients understand their risk better to then make informed decisions about their security posture versus business needs. So um, I'm a venture capitalist and I love founding stories. So could you sort of walk me through your founding story of Digital Shadows? Sure thing. Yeah, I, I guess. Um, so my background originally was pretty technical. I uh, a computer science grad and a product guy, really, by background. My co-founder James is a security guy through and through, and we we met at a British firm called Detica, 
uh, that was, uh, I like to say, it's a little bit like Palantir was. Uh, we had a competitive product. We got acquired by BAE Systems at the time. And although I, I learned a lot working for a big defense company, that wasn't really where I uh, wanted to spend the rest of my career. So I'd always wanted to do a startup. And I, I suddenly you know, became very interested in, in particular, what was going on with social media back in 2010, 2011, where people were putting out and sharing a lot of their personal information, home address, date of birth, just publishing it on this kind of Californian company's site without knowing a lot about it and where the data was being held and where it was going to go. And I started thinking about the implications for that. You know, I became an uncle at the same time. So I was thinking about this generation that's going to grow up and have this whole digital record and history of themselves that we never had when we were younger. And, and I think there's a lot of implications for society and, and the broader world that stem from that. You know, it's like a light bulb going on in our, all of our digital histories that, that went off on back in around sort of 29, 2009, 2010. So I started thinking through all the implications of that. And you know, I got a bit worried about security and privacy from an individual's perspective. And so it's quite interesting that we you know the whole Cambridge Analytica stuff that's that's happened and all the stories right. breaking in the last year or two. It's taken kind of that long for all the stuff I was worried about to come to fruition. Uh, but talking to James, my co-founder, he was keen to point out the enterprise risk that was apparent in uh, you know from the, the the push into social media, but also the broader cloud environment. We put our heads together and started looking at what we could find manually online found a, you know, a tremendous amount of sensitive information about companies that we knew they wouldn't want to, to have got online as a result of you know, them adopting various cloud services and other things like that. So we slightly naively quit our jobs and set up a company on the basis that no one else was doing it and we thought there's got to be a business in this. And so it took us you know, two years of bootstrapping because uh, we set up in London originally. Uh, we've been out in the US for four years now. I've been living there for that long. So we're very you know, US focused uh, as well now and have a big team here in Dallas and, and San Francisco. But um, we, we certainly started out in the UK and, and built out from a concept to where we are today. So we're now you know, 200 people, uh, over 200 clients using the system, offices in Singapore and Germany as well. But it's uh, certainly we, we started with uh, just two of us in the kitchen table back in London. So going back to something that you talked about, you seem to be a very early adopter of these security and privacy concerns when it comes to social media. And even though we talk a lot about uh, security inside the enterprise, I'm wondering if you could expound upon the, your thoughts when it comes to whether you think society has sort of wised up to the security and privacy concerns that go along with social media. Because you bring up Cambridge Analytica, yeah. and that's where mine went. my mind went immediately when you started talking about uh, your founding story there. So I'm kind of wondering whether you've seen a sea change in just the general population and using social media, or have they not really wised up yet to what's going on? Great question. I, I don't think there's a straightforward answer to that. I think some people are incredibly blasé at the moment still. Yeah, and they just think I can put whatever I like online. It's not going to hurt me. I don't care. I've got nothing to hide. And, you know, and to some extent, Maybe they're right. You know, we're living in a world now where a lot of this information is out in the open. If it isn't, it's you know, it's getting out in data breaches. We've probably all got some information out there in data breaches now. There's been so many, and so you know, maybe we have to think about the world in in this new new terms and how do you adapt to that type of scenario. But I think even you know, younger people, you expect to be very dig digital native. Uh, actually, you know, are taking their privacy seriously as well, and some of them are reacting very strongly to this, and you know, are pretty savvy about setting their privacy settings in such a way that they, you know, they are protected as far as 
they're concerned, or, or better protected. So I think I don't think there's a single perspective that I'm I'm seeing. You know, I think as a you know as a country, the U.S. is more relaxed about privacy than than we are in Europe typically. Right. Um, and I think that's interesting because there's always been a you know strong correlation with with the U.S. and freedom and how important that is. And I actually think yeah, you know, your privacy enshrined as a human right is quite a key part of of freedom as well because if everything you know is known about you everywhere you, you could argue that's you know that's is an invasion of your your uh, your privacy and, and perhaps could lead to a restriction in your freedom in the future and we've also got a history in Europe where people are a bit more sensitive post you know previous uh, conflicts where yeah their personal information was used against them so I think that's why you look at some of the countries in Europe and they're much more sensitive about their privacy. Right, and yeah. that's where GDPR comes in. Exactly. I was going to ask you, yeah. what, you what do you think, based, I'm, I'm very interested to hear how you think your company fits into the way that GDPR is evolving in Europe and whether or not you think that maybe digital shadows could be a tool to help companies sort of get their arms around the risk that they're exposed to when running up against GDPR. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it sort of core to our mission is to protect the privacy and security of individuals and and companies and communities more generally. And when you look at GDPR, uh, it's it, obviously the, the you know, biggest thing here is protecting consumer data that's being stored by companies. You know, wherever wherever those companies are, if they're using European customer data, that's a big that's a big deal now. And, and certainly, we're seeing a lot of interest from companies that are worried about that. And so, our quick perspective there is that we're going to keep track of that data if it's appearing online. And if it, you know, if it does get outside the boundary somewhere it shouldn't be, we'll help you get it taken down as quickly as you possibly could. So that's, you know, is a strong part of our proposition. You know, even before one example, even before that came in, I was sat with the CIO of a very large car manufacturer, and their their whole Malaysian customer database was leaked online. Okay. You know, we're able to find that as part of a trial. Included, you know, the VIN numbers, home addresses, all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, he had his chief legal counsel was sat next to him and. Obviously, it provokes a pretty big reaction of, well, you know, where are we going to be if this was European data? The answer, obviously, is not good. Right. You know, right. Essentially, very, very serious. You know, up to four percent of global turnover, etc., is is the nature of the fine. So, I, you know, I think the fact that that we were able to demonstrate that uh, showed what would have happened in, in the GDPR uh, scenario if it had been European data. So, certainly, one of the key use cases for us is is doing that, and, and we found a bunch of stuff. For, companies as you'd expect that they'd rather wasn't online they can quickly right. quickly get rid of it uh, before it appears in the media you know because you don't want the first place you hear about it to be the BBC or somewhere else right so on the heels of that do you think that the US could benefit from a GDPR type law it's interesting isn't it I mean we're starting to see that in some state legislation and, right. and you know obviously uh, California's mm-hmm. leading the way amongst others on that um, I, I was sat in a room with a whole bunch of security professionals a little while back and there were some of the Americans in the room were complaining that they're now being treated as second-class citizens by <laughs> Facebook and others, right? Because they're having to to look after the Not privacy, yeah, of, of Europeans better than they are Americans. Doesn't seem right, does it? You know, and certainly for people that do care about their privacy, you know, I can see that being a good thing from a consumer perspective. At the same time, we've got to make sure it's workable. I think there's a there's a danger you end up with a patchwork of different standards across the US, and that would be quite hard to deal with. And I think. What you might end up seeing is is that all companies just end up adopting something like GDPR because you're looking at you look at Singapore, you look at Australia, other countries are bringing in similar measures. So you're probably just going to have to pick a, a standard and a adopt it. Right. Yeah. it. Yeah, and GDPR, you know, it's got pros and cons, but it's pretty well thought out, and I think that might well end up being the baseline. 
So we end this in um, usually a random question. <laughs> okay. So given that you're headquartered in San Francisco and London, what's your favorite thing in British culture that isn't replicated in the U.S.? <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a, a tough one, but I've got to say the only thing I can't get in San Francisco that I really miss about London is a great Indian curry. So okay. I think a lot of Americans think that the British national dish is fish and chips, but it's actually chicken tikka masala. And uh, there's certainly, you know, we, we claim to have invented that up in, in the north of England and potentially Glasgow, okay. um, along with other popular Indian dishes. So I, I love Indian curry. It's one of my favorite things. And, I and miss that. feel like you're going to get some phone calls from Indian restaurants <laughs> saying, what do you mean? You haven't I, eaten at our restaurant yet. I was going to say, in D.C., <laughs> you might be able to find it. I know there are some good spots hey, in this area. People always say that, but I'm always disappointed. So uh, oh, wow. <laughs> it's a challenge. Okay. <laughs> feel free to, anyone else, to send me some recommendations. All right. yeah, yeah. Alistair, I really appreciate you hopping on with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Things again to Alistair. Greg, are you an Indian food guy? It sounds uh, like we need to find this guy some places. To uh, I mean, I'm happy to Google around on Yelp and Eater, but I don't have any recommendations off the top of my head. Just not my thing. Being wary more about how data works on social media networks, really more of my thing, really more of where I gel with uh, Alistair <laughs> and, and how he does that. But sorry, no uh, chicken tikka masala references for him. All right, well, that's it for this week. All right, see everybody next week. And as always, stay curious. Stay curious.